Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Now, how did your 2021 go? Did you accomplish less than you wanted to? Are you hoping to have a more successful run at your goals in 2022? Well, my guest today has got your plan for making the coming 12 months your best year ever. His name is Michael Hyatt, and he's the CEO of the leadership consulting firm, Michael Hyatt & Company, and the author and creator of your best year ever book and course. Today on the show, Michael takes us through the five-part process he believes is key for successfully making and keeping goals, starting with the importance of adopting the right mindset and doing an after-action review of how the previous year went. We then discuss how Michael has modified the standard SMART goal model to make them smarter, why your goals should feel risky, and the number of goals you should set per year. We then discuss how to stay motivated and working on your goals throughout the year, whether or not you should share your goals with others, and why you should tackle your goals by doing the easy stuff first. We enter a conversation with the importance of reviewing your goals on the regular. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash best year ever. Michael Hyatt, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brett. Good to be with you. So you've had an interesting career. The first half of your career, you were a CEO of a multi-million dollar publishing company. And in your second act of your career, you've turned into a teacher. You are teaching individuals, organizations, how to be better leaders, how to be more productive, how to set effective goals. Basically, you're, it seems like you're just trying to help people live better lives, more effective lives. And you've got a course coming out called Your Best Year Ever. And then you've based a book, you wrote a book based on this course called Your Best Year Ever. And I thought it'd be great to bring you on the podcast now because we're coming to the end of the year. People are thinking about how 2021 went. They're thinking about goals they want to set for 2022. So I think we've got some, you've got some good insights to help people through this process. So let's start off with where people mess up with their New Year's resolutions, like where they get derailed. Do we have numbers on how many people create resolutions and then like the percentage of people that actually follow through? Have you figured that out? Yeah. You know, I've seen a variety of, of stats on that. I mean, basically almost everybody sets resolutions. Very, very few people follow through on them. And, and partly it's because I, I think more of a, a resolution, like an aspiration. It's just sort of this general, but vague desire to achieve or to accomplish something. But unless it gets reduced into an actual goal, and I've got a very specific format for how I coach people to, to develop their goals based on the, the latest science. And unless it's put in that format and you've got some sort of system that, uh, you know, is, is the foundation for the whole thing, you're probably just going to be, you know, petering out by the third or fourth week of January. In fact, usually when I go to the gym, I used to belong to a gym and now I've got one in my house, but I used to go to the gym and always after the first of the year, I hated it because yeah. parking lot was full, couldn't find a parking place, go into the gym, couldn't get on the equipment in a timely manner because the place was packed. But I finally learned that if I would just wait a couple of weeks, all that would take care of itself because all the people that were, you know, the the people that had made resolutions, but didn't really have a plan for following through, they would just give up and go back to their, their normal life. So you got to have, you got to have a system. And that's what I try to offer in your best year ever. So yeah, it's, it's the, the problem is a lot of times people set goals, it's very ethereal and very vague. And you're saying you got to make it concrete. Absolutely. The more specific and measurable and concrete that you can make it, the better it's going to be. Because you got you to really kind of step into the future. And I mean, I think this is where people get tripped up and where people don't get the clarity they need because they don't think about it enough. But I think deciding what you want for your future is the hardest part. Once you decide that, trying to visualize that in as much detail as possible and then reduce it to writing, you know, is critical to the whole process. Well, before we get to writing down goals, there's stuff you got to do before that. And you walk people through this process. It's a five-part it's a five part process. Um, it's field-tested with thousands of people you've done this over the years with. And you start off with basically, before you even write a goal down, is you have to talk about people's mindsets when it comes to goal setting. How do our beliefs about ourselves and the world around us influence whether we'll achieve our goals or not? Like, what do you see the mistakes people make there? Yeah, this is like the, the biggest thing people have to get past because their ability to visualize the future, their ability to change is really dependent upon the way that they view the world. I call it limiting beliefs. So we have these beliefs about the world that don't actually exist out there, but they're just in our head. And we're often unaware of these, but they shape our reality. So let me give an example. I don't know, about a decade ago, we had an English setter. His name was Nelson. 
And he was a great dog, except that if we put him in the backyard, we didn't have a fence at the time. He would often, you know, wander away. We'd have to go chase him down. And it just wasn't very, you know, good use of our time. So we invested in an invisible fence. And it was amazing because, you know, they put a a perimeter wire around your property. And then if the dog tries to transgress that perimeter or go past the perimeter, then they get just like a vibration. But it's unexpected. So it kind of shocks them and they avoid that sort of surprising, you know, little vibration. And so it doesn't take long. I mean, they got, you know, he got trained in like, I don't know, probably less than an hour. And he was so trained that I would have the grandkids on the other side of the invisible fence and try to coax him with treats to come over it. And he couldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. He always stayed on the inside of the invisible fence. It was a great, great solution. In fact, I had to get a sponsorship with them because I tell this story so much. But regardless, the, the thing is, is that his view of reality had moved from the physical world to his head. The only thing that was keeping him from going past that perimeter was his belief that something bad was going to happen if he did so. And that was it. But all of us developed these over time. You know, maybe it was because it was the way that we were raised or we had some negative experience. And, you know, years ago, back in the early 90s, I went through a bankruptcy with a business that I had started. And it was horrific. I mean, it was one of the most humiliating things that I ever went through. But one of the things I discovered years later was that I had a belief that I developed around that experience that basically said, I'm not very good at starting a business or I'm not very good at running a business. And man, I had to shake that. I went on to become the CEO of Thomas Nelson Publishers, one of the largest book publishers in the world. But I had to do some serious mental work before I could even begin to think about that and break myself free from the past. So that's where people have to start is really develop their mindset and ask themselves, what is it that's keeping them from getting the life they want? Is it, is it really out there or is it between their ears? And I would say probably in my experience, some of it's out there for sure, objective, but most of it's subjective. And it's just a belief that we have about the future or about the world. When you've worked with people through your course and your program and your coaching, what are some common you know, beliefs that people have, limiting beliefs that people have you've seen over and over again? Yeah, I would say some of the most common ones have to do with themselves. You know, they'll say, for example, I'm not very good with money or I'm too young or I'm too old. You know, I get that all the time, especially from entrepreneurs. I coach a lot of entrepreneurs and they'll say, well, I'm not, I'm not sure I should start this business because I'm too old, or I'm not sure I should start this business because I'm too young. And so then I just have them look at some examples of people that were really young when they started businesses and were highly successful or really old when they started businesses and were highly successful. But those would be some of the most common ones. It could also be their beliefs about other people. You know, like, you know, whenever you hear somebody say, you know, all women are, or all men are, are, or all children are, or all, you know, pick your ethnic group are, you know, those are limiting beliefs that have very little to do, if any, with reality out there. And then there's, you know, beliefs about the world where people say something like, you know, it's just, people are just evil or they're just bad or conversely, you could say they're good. I mean, these are all beliefs. Nobody's going to, you know, be able to empirically prove that one way or the other, but they're beliefs that shape how we behave. And that's the key thing. So we got to be careful about what we believe. I've got a sign in my kitchen that says, don't believe everything you think. No, yeah, it's really true. Yeah, you bring in cognitive behavioral therapy in this. They have this idea of limiting beliefs. They call it learned helplessness. And I think they actually did an experiment with dogs, like your dog, where they basically shocked a dog so much they stopped jumping over a fence and they could just take off the shock and the, the dog wouldn't jump over the fence anymore. But yeah, one of the problems that can lead or the bad thinking patterns that can lead to limiting beliefs is, you know, catastrophizing, you know, thinking the worst could happen yep. or universalizing. It's like, well, I, it didn't work out for me in this one instance. So therefore it will never work out for me. You're exactly right. Catastrophizing, universalizing, personalizing. Those are all ways that we take the stories that we experience and then we try to apply them in a broader sense. And sometimes that's helpful. I mean, that's, you know, kind of the foundation of wisdom, but it can also be the foundation of limiting beliefs that hold us back. And another limiting belief that uh, people can have, especially around goals or resolutions, like, well, I've never followed through on my resolutions, so there's no point in trying now. And I think that's, that holds a lot of people back. Oh, it definitely does. Or I'm, I'm not very good with deadlines, or that goal is just too big, or I've never done that before. And I think we have to be careful. And here's one way to access what those limiting beliefs are, is pay specific attention 
to the language you use. So for example, if you say to yourself, gosh, I'm just not very good with money or I never follow through. My, my daughter says this. She says, well, if you say so, yeah, because you know, not only our thinking, but our words determine the reality that we experience. It shapes and structures kind of our cognitive experience and enables us to process it and make meaning out of it. So we got to be careful about what we say. This is very helpful, by the way, for people that may be listening that may be coaching or therapists or whatever, but uh, just listening to the language that people use can be really helpful in helping you to access or understand their thoughts. All right. So the first step is just figuring out what it, what are your limiting beliefs, your negative thinking patterns. How do you reset those to something more positive and abundant? Yeah, I've, I tell people, you know, the first thing you got to do is get it out of your head. So go ahead and write it down just as it appears in your head. So usually limiting beliefs, they're, they're sentences in our head. And, you know, so if we can just get those on paper, just write down what you're saying to yourself. There's this inner narrator that just, you know, exists in all of us that's constantly explaining, interpreting, and making meaning. So get it on paper. That's number one. Number two, ask yourself the question, is that belief empowering or not? Now, if it's not empowering and you want to change it, then what you have to do is transform it into a liberating truth. So from limiting belief to liberating truth. So for example, you, you might say to yourself, I'm not very good with money. That would be the limiting belief. You say, that's not really serving me because I tend, because of that belief, I find myself not very good with money. But a liberating truth might be something like, you know, I'm learning to be more proficient with money or I'm learning how to invest or something. It, it needs to be true, but it needs to be the aspect that you, you're missing or you're not emphasizing. So all of us can learn right? We just got to transform it into something more productive and more helpful. Yeah. It's, it's reframing. I mean, one useful thing I've read. And this reframing, comes, exactly. Yeah. This comes from cognitive behavioral therapy. You know, if you find yourself universalizing, like, well, I'm, I'm not good at this. Well, you can add in yet at the end. Like, I'm not good at this yet. So it's, the idea is that you can, this isn't permanent. You can actually do things to improve the situation. Yeah. That's a good way to do it. And that's a good way to hack our language. You know, another, another example of that exact same thing is when people say, I have to go to the gym. And if they can just change one word from have to get, I get to go to the gym. Then all of a sudden you start focusing on the positive aspects of going to the gym instead of sort of the negative part of it, the drudgery part of it, the part of it that you're trying to avoid. Yeah. You talk about in the book, a lot of people, especially when you get in middle age, they're always complaining about, I'm just tired. I have no energy to to do things. But like you said, reframe. It's like, well, you have enough energy to get done what you need to get done. I've caught, I've caught myself doing that I, when my kids are like, what's wrong? I'm, like, I'm just so tired. And it's like, I'm not really tired. I, I mean, I'm able, to do, I'm able to function. I'm able to go down and do a workout. So I'm not tired. I got to quit telling myself that. Totally. Because you will manifest that behavior. And one of the things I say to myself, one of my affirmations with regard to energy, which is important, is that I say I have more than enough energy to achieve the things I need to do. That's all you got to do. And besides reframing, you also recommend after you've done that is you have to sort of reorient yourself to that new belief. Kind of, you have to kind of tell you, talk to yourself in a way, kind of do, I mean, I wouldn't call them affirmations, but you have to change the way you talk to yourself so that you start believing this new reality. Yeah. Brooke Castillo, who has a great podcast called Self-Coaching School, you know, she calls this self-coaching. And I think that, that for all of us, you know, I think coaching is a great thing to, to get involved in. Therapy is a great thing to, to get involved in, but you can do a lot of self-coaching. Just talk to yourself, coach yourself. What would a coach say to you in this situation? Yeah. Wait, what would, I always do that when I'm being hard on myself. It's like, would I talk to my son this way if he's having a hard time? And the answer is usually no. So yeah, that's a good one. All right. So the first part is, is figuring out your limiting beliefs and reframing them and reorienting them to a more abundant, more positive view. So if you have this view of yourself that you can never accomplish goals, well, you, maybe not now, but you can, you can change that. The next process is before you even start setting or writing a goal down is uh, reviewing your past. Why is it important to review your past before you start thinking about goals for the future? Well, First of all, I'm not, I'm not recommending that you do a deep dive into this. You know, that may be time better spent with a therapist. And, and frankly, I really believe in therapy and have had quite a bit myself. But what I'm talking about here specifically as it relates to setting goals for the new year is look back over the last year. You know, if, if there, by the way, if there was trauma or something, you know, really significant, that may be helpful to process with a therapist too. But, but here's the thing I'm after. 
I don't want you to drag the worst of your past, especially the last 12 months, into your future and make your future toxic or ruin it before it starts. So it's important to get clear on what happened in the past, do what I call in the book and in the course, an after action review, which is something I learned from the U.S. military. But just asking yourself the question, you know, simply what did what was it that you wanted to have happen? And then to acknowledge it, you know, don't pretend, don't try to blow it off. Don't try to dismiss it. Don't make it bigger than it was. Don't make it smaller than it was, but acknowledge what actually happened in as objective way as you can. And then, then go ahead and learn from it. And, you know, what are the, what is the wisdom that you can distill still from it that you might still find useful into the future and then adjust your behavior. So literally those steps, if you go through those steps in processing the past, and in the course, I, I have people actually write these things down. There's, a, there's an exercise for this, but write this stuff down and just make sure that you've processed it and you're not dragging it into the future. Yeah. I mean, in the book, you have a few questions to ask yourself in this after action review. Like, I mean, one of them is, what were your plans, dreams, and your concrete goals, if you had any? Sometimes you forget what they were. I like this one. What were some of the two or three specific themes that kept reoccurring throughout the year? I think that's interesting because I think every year has a different theme based on a different part of your life. So those are a few questions. Let's say you do this after action review. So you write down how the year went and you're trying to not get too emotional in this. You're trying to be objective. Talk about the successes, talk about the losses. But let's say you look at it and you're looking at the losses and you start feeling that twinge of regret. It's like, oh man, I just wasted another year. You actually make this case that you can use that feeling of regret, kind of do a judo move on it and actually use it to spur you for positive change. What does that look like? Yeah, there's been a lot of research around regret. And the thing about regret is it usually indicates, and I kind of see it like as a Geiger counter that uh, is revealing buried treasure. Whenever you feel regret, that's oftentimes where you have the opportunity to really grow and to really achieve something significant. And it's called in the research, the opportunity principle. But to look for that regret and don't see it as something negative or something shaming, but to kind of embrace it and say, oh, I feel some regret about whatever it was, that, that loss, that thing I didn't fully achieve. So maybe that's an opportunity that I can focus on. And if I could just persist this next year, I could get the breakthrough that I'm after. Okay. So look, look for those, instead of seeing regrets, so I guess regret, yeah, I like that. It's a, it's a Geiger counter to figure out where you can make improvements. You also, besides analyzing your regrets, look for opportunities to be grateful. Why is that important in your goal setting process? Well, before you ever begin the process of setting actual goals, you've got to get yourself in a position where you're thinking abundantly about the future. And this is also kind of another limiting belief that people have. If they have scarcity thinking, then they're not going to think as expansively as, as they should about the future. You know, their, their world is going to be very small. What they think they can accomplish is very small. But if you can get to a place where you feel abundant, and all of us have felt this way, where you, you know, you wake up grateful maybe on, on, a, on a certain day and you think, man, I could take on the world. It's because you're having an abundance mindset. And so why not be intentional about that? I mean, it's a good practice to do every day, but especially when you think about planning goals for the future, to, to look back over the last year, even if it wasn't a great year, what are the things that, that you could be grateful for? And, and just to remember, life is not just a single dimension. It's not all work. You know, maybe things didn't go so well at work, but maybe your marriage or your relationship with a significant other is amazing, or your relationship with your kids is great, or you picked up a new hobby, or, you know, you've got some friends that you didn't have before. Whatever it is, try to find those areas where you can be grateful. And I find, Brett, to write those down is also very helpful, helpful, makes it more concrete. And it also gives you a list to refer to on those days when you wake up and you don't feel so grateful. It's just a way to prime the pump. And I think, yeah, it's important to be grateful because as you said, it, it, great, gratitude is just a virtue. So you should do it in and of itself, right? But also it's good to do before you set goals because as you said, whenever, they've actually done research on this and you've highlighted the research in your book. Whenever people are in a scarcity mindset, when they start thinking about the future, they start thinking scarce. They, they have very limiting beliefs. But if, they have a, if they're more grateful, they're more optimistic, and they're more open to possibilities when they start thinking about the future. And that will help you when you actually start sitting down to write your goals out. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, I literally, I, I believe in this so much that I begin every day with it. You know, initial gratitude, what, was, what am I grateful for from the previous day? 
And then I do it in my weekly preview, what I'm reviewing the past week. I do it in my quarterly preview when I'm looking at the previous quarter before I plan the new quarter. But it's just a, a good exercise that frankly kind of helps you bring closure. And in this case, we're talking about step two, the past, bring closure to the past before you begin the process of designing the future. Just a great way to do it and set you up for success. And another point you make that oftentimes we think of gratitude as a mood, that it just, we feel grateful whenever the mood strikes us. But no, you say like, no, gratitude is a practice you have to be intentional with because it doesn't just happen. You're, you don't want it to just happen. Yeah, this is, this is true really for a lot of emotions, but sometimes people think gratitude is an emotion and indeed it can be an emotion, but we can get to that motion. One way to hack our way there is to begin to act grateful, to begin to say grateful things. True for love too. You know, I learned this a long time ago. Thank God I've been married for 43 years, but I wouldn't be married if I was just depending upon sort of this elusive feeling that we call love. Because sometimes I don't feel that. But if I act in a loving way or I speak loving words, guess what? My feelings follow my actions. So that's an important, I think, life principle is to remember that our feelings are always going to follow our actions and we can act our way into a new way of feeling. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Peloton is pushing you further with so much new on the Peloton bike and the Peloton bike plus new classes, new music, new ways to keep your workouts fun and motivating. Peloton is stepping into the ring with its newest discipline, boxing, and no gloves are needed. Discover a fast, furious, and fun workout with Peloton instructors in your corner. Even if you've never boxed before, these classes will have you working up a sweat while working on the fundamentals of form, footwork, and fun combos that'll keep you on your toes. Plus, Peloton is adding fun new artist series classes. Work out the music of a single artist for an entire class from your favorite hits to the deep cuts. Peloton has a workout for every goal, day, and mood. Stay motivated while having fun with bike workouts, yoga, meditation, dance, cardio, and more. I've used the Peloton Bike Plus. It's a cool thing. My favorite workouts are the ones where they combine the biking with the boot camp style stuff. So you're doing, getting off, doing some dumbbell work. A lot of fun. Visit OnePeloton.com to learn more. That's O-N-E-P-E-L-O-T-O-N.com. OnePeloton.com. Check it out today. Valentine's Day is coming up, and if you're looking for a gift for that special someone in your life, check out Urban Stems. Urban Stems delivers modern bouquets, unique gifts, and stylish plants next day nationwide. They make it a priority to work directly with Rainforest Alliance certified farms and believe that a hands-on approach is the best way to guarantee only the freshest flowers are picked every day. Their Valentine's Day collection is curated with romance and friendship in mind. Every bouquet is designed in-house and on-trend. Every Urban Stems delivery includes a personalized note for your recipient, thoughtfully designed packaging, and a 100% happiness guarantee. Their bouquets range in flower variety from seasonal favorites like lilies and tulips to the go-to favorites like roses. Urban Stems also offers dried bouquets for a long-lasting unique gift for Valentine's Day. Take your pick from a variety of bouquets, plants, gifts, and floral subscription options at urbanstems.com. Shop at urbanstems.com and use promo code MANLINESS15 for 15% off your purchase plus free shipping. That's urbanstems.com, promo code MANLINESS15 for 15% off your purchase and free shipping. And now back to the show. All right, so we've looked at our limiting beliefs, reoriented to them, reframed them. We've done the after action review. Now we're actually going to start thinking about our goals and writing goals down. And I think pretty much everyone who's listening to this podcast has probably heard of SMART goals. These are goals that are specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, and then time-bound. You've modified the SMART goal process to create smarter goals. What does a SMARTER goal look like? Well, let me give you the acronym, and it is an acronym just like SMART. Before I get to that, I want to just say that it's critically important to write down your goals. This is where, where a lot of people don't achieve what they want to achieve. And this is the case with resolutions because it's something vague. It's in their head. It doesn't live on a piece of paper. I really believe, Brett, that the first step in making something, that aspiration a reality, the, the way to begin to manifest that and make it part of your experience is to begin to write it down. Certainly you can speak it and that's helpful too. But the thing about writing is it helps you clarify your thinking. And there's this old saying that I picked up somewhere. I'm not even sure who said it, but it's that thoughts disentangle themselves passing over the lips and through pencil tips. Sometimes things are a jumble in our head, but as we begin the practice or the act of writing it down, we start to get clarity. And it's almost magical how it happens because I can be really vague on something. And I learned this as a writer, but if I start writing, I'll get clear because that very act forces you to get clear. Okay. So let me give you these seven attributes of smarter goals. First of all, 
Attribute number one. Do you want me to give you an overview and then we can go back and unpack yeah, it? Or how, let's do, how yeah, let's do, yeah, let's do overview and then kind of unpack it. Okay. So attribute number one is specific. Attribute number two is measurable. So far, no difference with the, the SMART framework. Attribute number three is a little bit different in my system. It's actionable. I'll come back and talk about what that means. Attribute four is where I really depart from the conventional wisdom. And that is attribute number four is risky. And a lot of times in the traditional framework, that stands for either relevant or it stands for realistic. And I contend that realism is overrated. I'll come back to that. Attribute number five is that they're time keyed or time bound. Attribute number six is they're exciting. And attribute number seven is that they're relevant. So smarter. Okay. So what's specific, what does a specific goal look like? Well, this is a case where the more specific you can make it so that it's not vague and general, but the more specific that you can make it, the more likely you are to achieve it because it's going to help you to visualize it. It's going to help you actually pursue it and make it concrete. So, you know, I've had goals in the past. I've, I've written, I think, 12 books. And if I just had a goal, like write a book, you know, that's directionally right. I mean, at least it's getting me pointed in the right direction. But if I say, for example, like my new book is called It's All in Your Head, and it's all about brain science and how we can apply that to goal achievement and productivity. But if I, if I literally say, like I did last year, that my goal was to write a book called It's All in Your Head, that all of a sudden is more vivid. I can visualize that. I know what to do with that. Writing a book, that sounds big, ambiguous, and scary. So make it as specific as you can. Okay. And then the next one is measurable. Yeah. The great thing about this is if you can make it measurable, first of all, you can plot your progress. So for example, if I've set a goal that I want to lose 20 pounds and I've been specific and measurable and put 20 pounds in there, then I know how I'm doing toward that goal. It also helps me to recognize the win. I'm defining the win in advance and I'm trying to reduce it if possible to a number. Now I, I fully get that not everything that we want to achieve in life can be measurable, you know, and there's, I just distinguish in the book between what I call achievement goals, which is what I'm talking about now and habit goals, which are often useful in those situations where we can't measure. We're going to just take up a habit that we know is going to move us toward what we want. So for example, if I want to have a better relationship with one of my kids, you know, I could pick up a habit goal, like, you know, having lunch with them at school every week. That would move me toward, you know, that kind of connection that I desire that may not be able to be measured. But I would say when you're doing an achievement goal, you, if at all possible, reduce it to a number, include something that quantifies it. It'll help you mark your progress and it'll help you know when you've won. Well, even with a habit goal, you can make it measurable by saying, well, I'm going to do X once a week. Totally. That's a little hack for, for a thing that where you, where you want something that's an aspiration, but you can't, I have a goal can get you there. Yeah. Okay. So we got miserable. The next one, this is where you change instead of achievable, you have actionable. Why the, why the difference? Well, goals are essentially about taking action. And so I I don't even know what achievable is. I don't even know what that means because the, the reason I don't know what it means is because I've been able to accomplish, you probably have to things that on the front end, I didn't know if they were achievable. And I just, you know, I, I know that if I set a goal that's right, I probably got a good chance of achieving it. But I call this actionable because it needs to be a verb. It's about the actions that I can take that are going to move me toward this new reality that I want. And it's very simple, but just make sure that every goal starts with a verb, but it's an action verb, not a to be verb. So I don't want to get too grammatical here, but for example, if I, if I said, you know, something like, you know, I want to be a better writer. You know, that's a to be verb. Instead of saying like, I'm going to, you know, write 500 words a day, which would be a habit goal, or I could make an achievement goal. I want to write this manuscript called It's All in Your Head. Okay. Makes sense? That makes sense. All right. So make it actionable. Avoid to be, make it an action verb. The next one, you added this, it's the R, it's risky. So this is a lot of times smart goals are like, you want them to be realistic, but you're saying, no, you want the the goals to be risky. Why no. is that? Yeah. And I'm doing, I'm doing this Brett, based on the research. So in goal, uh, there's a whole field of study called goal achievement research. And the people that, that have done work in that area basically found to their surprise and counterintuitively that when you set a goal too low, it doesn't really command your attention. It doesn't ignite your imagination. It, there's nothing about it that pulls you forward, 
because it's only an incremental gain. It's nothing that that is inspiring. So what you've got to do is you've got to make this something that's risky, that's in your discomfort zone. And that's the key thing is to put it inside of your discomfort zone. So the way you know that you're in your discomfort zone is when you begin to feel a little bit of fear, a little bit of uncertainty, or a little bit of doubt. FUD, people call it. But I'm looking for those three emotions that indicate that I've passed from the comfort zone where nothing really good happens. You know, you just maintain the status quo to the discomfort zone. And if you really think about it, this is where every great thing happens. But it doesn't usually start out that way. We feel a little bit of fear, like the possibility that we may fail. So we got to dial up the goal in terms of what we're trying to achieve to the point where we feel a little bit of fear. We know we could fail. It's not a certainty. And then that brings us to uncertainty. You know, we're not sure if we can do it. You know, we've never done it before. And then finally, doubt. Maybe we wonder, do I have what it takes to pull this off? And those are actually good motivations and talk about reframing. I reframe these as positive indicators that I've now just moved beyond the comfort zone into the discomfort zone where great things happen. If you look back over the course of your life, probably every significant, important, meaningful thing that happened to you began in the discomfort zone, right? You were out of your comfort zone, whether it was that new job you took or starting that new business or marrying that girl or marrying that boy or having those kids or whatever it was, it was all in your discomfort zone and it created that fear, uncertainty, and doubt. So you don't want to dial it up so far that you're in what I call the delusional zone where, you know, it's just impossible. Like, for example, if I said, um, you know, at my age, I think I'd like to start a third career as an NBA center, right. you know, that's in the delusional zone. But if I, but there's a lot of things that would be in the discomfort zone, but so I just want to make sure that I don't go too far over into the delusional zone. I want to dial it back a few clicks so that it represents something that, that achieves that fear, uncertainty and doubt, but not where I'm terrified by it or have no clue about how to proceed. That's the delusional zone. All right. So the next one in the T is time keyed. And that's just, it makes sure it's kind of similar to time bound, like have a a deadline associated with it. Totally. And the only reason I call it time keyed is because when it comes to habit goals, you know, you, you might not be talking about a deadline. You won't be talking about a deadline, but you might be talking about, for example, the time of day that you're going to do it or the days you're going to do it. Is this going to be a Monday, Wednesday, Friday activity, or is this going to be, you know, an everyday activity, or is this going to be at nine o'clock in, in the morning, or is it going to be at, you know, noon? So it, it needs to be time key. There needs to be a date or a time associated with it. Or the next one is E and that's excitement or exciting. What is an exciting goal? And why is that important that you feel excited about your goal? Well, it's important because if you're not excited about the goal and, you know, there's a lot of times we put things on our goal list that we feel like we ought to do, maybe because our boss is asking us to do it or our spouse is asking, but it's, it, it, it really is something that's extrinsic. You know, it's, it's external to us. Somebody else is motivated by it, but we're not that motivated by it. Those goals you will not accomplish. Not usually. You'll, you'll, you, when you get to the messy middle, you'll quit on the goal. And that's an important uh, concept to be aware of too, is that in every goal pursuit, you're going to encounter a time when it's the messy middle, when you're too far in to quit, but you're not sure you've got what it takes to finish. And that's when you want to quit. And that's where a lot of people quit. So if you don't have something that's really exciting that you actually want to accomplish, it's going to be easy to bail at that point. Yeah, I want to talk more about that, like staying motivated on your goals throughout the year because you have some more insights there. But that last uh, letter in the acronym of SMARTER is R, and that's relevant. What does a relevant goal look like? Well, there, there's a couple different things that it means, but let me just give you two of them. First of all, it means that they're relevant to the season in life that you are right now. You know, I'm an empty nester. I've got more discretionary time than most people, and I've got five grown daughters, some of them with very small children who have very little discretionary time. It wouldn't be appropriate for them to try to set a goal in some area, like I might set a goal, like for a hobby or something, because they don't have the time right now to pursue it. So it's got to be relevant to your season in life and your life circumstances. But the goals also need to be relevant to each other. And what I mean by that is they they need to fit together. You can get into the delusional zone by having several giant goals that on their own make sense. Yeah, they're in your discomfort zone, but they're not in the delusional zone. But if you put too many of those together, you're going to be in the delusional zone. 
So you've just got to have some balance there and make sure that there's some kind of internal logic that makes sense for all the goals as they fit together. Well, let's talk about the number of goals. Cause I think that's a, a thing that people struggle with. I know I've had in the past when I've set resolutions because you just want to do all the things right, um, right in a year. So do you have any insights on like what's the ideal number of goals to pursue throughout the year? Or is it like you having like are you setting goals a quarter? Are you setting goals for the entire year? Like what does that look like? Yeah, what we recommend is seven to twelve per year. Okay. No more than that, but no more than three. Sometimes you can go to four, but three goals per quarter. So spread your goals out evenly. Don't make them all due on December the 31st, because what happens is to people is they procrastinate and then they're trying to jam them all in the last quarter of the year. So have them spread out, but also no more than seven to 12 for the whole year. I may say seven to 10 in the book, but the latest research shows about seven to 12. Okay, but you're not doing, I think the key there's you're not doing it all at once. I think that's what causes people to get overwhelmed and just stop because they try to do everything at once. Totally. And that'll, that'll, you know, that builds into it failure. So seven to 12, and that's a, that's a much more, you know, realistic number to manage. If you think about it this way, Brett, you think, you know, a goal is kind of outside the whirlwind of daily activity and you're, you've got a life that requires certain maintenance and those are things that are already in place. And so it's not like, you know, you've got 40 hours a week to pursue these goals of things that don't exist. You've got things that are already in place that you got to maintain. So you want to make sure that you don't, you know, have more goal than you've got resources to accomplish. Do you have any insights on the type of goals, like domains of life that people should make goals for? Absolutely. And in fact, we've got an assessment called the Life Score Assessment that will enable people to take that. And it's a free test. Maybe you could link to this in the show notes. Will do. But uh, what the Life Score Assessment does is that it gives you an opportunity to self-assess against the 10 major domains of life. And I do this every year. In fact, I do it every quarter so that I can evaluate just how I'm doing in each of these areas. So I know where I need to focus because for example, if I'm, if I'm really suffering in the domain of my social life, my friendships, then that may be something I want to build a goal around for this next year. Okay. So let's talk about, uh, we set our goals, we've written them down, we get started on them. And as you said earlier, at the very beginning, you know, a lot of people, they set that fitness goal. And so the gym is crowded. And then about a month later, it's back to normal. So a lot of people where they get hung up, they get going strong, they start out, start out the gate really strong, but then they just sort of peter out. Any insights from research that you've done and just working with people on how to stay motivated throughout the year on your goals? Yeah. One of the things that I encourage people to do is to get really clear on their why. Find their why. What is it that's motivating you or you find motivational when you frame that goal up? And we'll never be, you know, more inspired than we are at that moment when we begin. I mean, I can think of, you know, running several half marathons and everybody's pumped up at the beginning of the race. You know, you think, oh my gosh, I've got so much energy. I've got 30,000 people out here. You know, you the, the excitement's palatable. And a lot of people start off too fast. You know, they don't pace themselves because they have that exhilaration from having a goal. But the problem is what's going to keep you going when you hit, you know, mile number 10 or mile number 11. And that's where you have to identify your why. I think if you can do that on the front end and get crystal clear on why you want to accomplish this, that's important. You also want to make sure that it's something that's internally motivating you, like I said a few moments ago, and not something external. This is not something that merely, you know, my spouse wants or my boss wants or society expects but this is something I really want. If I'm honest with myself, I look in the mirror and I say, you know, why is it that I'm motivated to achieve this? That's what you got to get to. And I find that if you can write those down and identify at least three and rank them in priority order, you know, like what's the most motivating? What's the second most motivating? What's the third most motivating? That's a list that you can pull out from time to time when you want to quit or when you're tempted to quit, pull it out and say, oh yeah, that's why I wanted to do that. That's what this is going to make possible if I achieve this goal. So kind of back to, you know, book writing. One of my first books was my book platform, Get Noticed in a Noisy World. And so I had just left the big corporate world and was starting this new business, this new career as a speaker and an author and a business coach. And so, you know, writing a book is hard. And there are many times when you want to quit. And I can remember in that specific book, I got, I was like a week away from the deadline and I'm reading back through the manuscript and I'm thinking to myself, this just is not very good. I don't, I, this needs a lot more work. And I started to kind of panic. 
And then I reminded myself why I needed to stay with my nose to the grindstone and finish out the project. And I said, you know, one of the things that I'd written down back when I'd identified that goal is I said, you know, the, if I can publish this and it could be a success, this is going to produce the, or this is going to serve to be the groundwork of my whole future, of my whole business. So if I can get this done right, then this is going to make so much that I want to accomplish, whether it's speaking or coaching or whatever, it's going to make it so much easier if I've credentialed myself with this book. So that got me through that very messy middle when I wanted to quit, wanted to bail on the goal, but I was able to go go through with it because I pulled out that list and looked at all the reasons why it was important. Another tactic that I found really useful to keep yourself motivated when you're working on your goals is you got this from a guy named Dan Sullivan. It's uh, whenever you're feeling down and dejected about your, the progress you're making on your goals, it says, you said to measure the gains, not the gap. What does that mean? Yeah, Dan's got this great concept and and he's my coach, but he says, measure the gain, not the gap. So what that means is that let's just say you get to the end of December or let's actually, let's say you get to July. You got a goal to lose 20 pounds. You've, you've lost 13. Okay, so now you got a choice. You can either focus on what you've gained. You can say, holy smoke, I've lost 13 pounds since the beginning of the year. Or you can focus on the gap and you can say, gosh, I'm still seven pounds away from my goal. Well, if you focus on the gain, that's going to fill you with confidence and a sense of possibility about the future. It's going to re-energize you to keep in the race and keep going. If you focus on the gap, that's where you get overwhelmed and want to quit. So Dan says, always focus on the gain, not the gap. What about groups? How can other people help you stay motivated throughout the year? Well, you know, life is, is better lived when we do it as a journey with other people. And I found accountability groups and not even accountability groups, but just people that share similar interests, similar goals are, can be a huge motivation for one another. These are the people that you can brainstorm when you get stuck. You can get feedback to your goal initially. You can get encouragement when you want to quit. And frankly, these are people that can kick your butt when you know, you're slacking off. So it's got, you got to be very careful about the peer group that you choose for this, but the right group can make all the difference. And I experienced this when I was running you know, my first several half marathons. I, I tried to do it kind of Lone Ranger style and it was hard. And once I joined a group and I knew the group was counting on me to show up and I was counting on them to show up, it made it so much easier. And then when we were out there running, it also made it easier because I wasn't just doing it on my own alone with my thoughts. I was having conversations with people that were pursuing the same goal and it was inspiring. Something you talk about, some research that I've read before is you don't want to tell your goals to people because you're less likely to fulfill them. Because basically when you tell someone the goal, you get the satisfaction of like that you accomplished the goal because people are like, oh, wow, it's a great goal to have and you feel good and it causes you to not work on it. But then you dug deeper into this and it's not completely the whole picture. How can you tell people your goals so you're, you're held accountable, but in a way it doesn't de- decrease motivation to actually get started on it? Yeah, so the two extremes are that, you know, I'm going to announce to the world that I'm going to achieve this thing. And what the research says that if you do that, your brain actually thinks it's accomplished it. And so then you just kind of take your foot off the pedal and you don't pursue it. On the other hand, the other extreme is I'm not going to tell anybody. And so that's kind of the lone, lone ranger approach where it's just you and your goal. And what the latest research shows is that, that there's a middle ground. And that is you want to selectively share your goals with that peer group. And again, a small group, you know, not 30 people, not 50 people. I'm talking two, three people that, that you know are going to be an encouragement to you. They're not people that are going to tell you that, you know, you can't achieve that, achieve that goal, but people that are going to encourage you on when you want to quit, that's a group you want to share it with. And that's perfectly, perfectly fine. All right. So be, be picky with who you share your goals with. Be picky. All right. So the final process in your best year ever process is just getting started, taking action. That That's for a lot of people, that's the thing that holds them back. They make the goals in the new year, but they actually don't do anything to get going on it. How do you overcome that inertia after you've set your goals? Well, the simple thing is just start. And I'll tell you how not to do that. One thing that people sometimes do is that they over plan. You know, they want to identify every single step to get from where they are to achieve that goal. Now, that may be important if it's going to demand a huge number of resources. Like right now, we're about to do a renovation to a, to a house that we own. And so we're getting a very detailed 
fixed bid step-by-step from the contractor because we, we want to know what we're signing up for and we want to make sure that you know we have the resources to cover it. But for most of us with our goals, that's just kind of a fast, fancy way to procrastinate, right? So we, we decide we're just going to have all these steps and when we get the project just right and just perfect, we do a little bit more research, then we'll start. But here's the problem. If you've got a goal that's set in your discomfort zone, you're not going to clearly understand what's required until you get into the process and you just got to start. So I, I, I even have an acronym for start, you know, schedule the action required today. Schedule the action required today. That's how you start. What do I need to do first? Forget about step two, forget about step three, you know, but, but focus on where do you need to start first in order to get in motion and begin to build momentum. And one of the ways you can build momentum you talk about is do the easy stuff first. And that's kind of counterintuitive. Oftentimes in the self-development world, you hear like eat the frog. So like do the hard thing first. But you say, no, actually do the easy things first. Yeah. So let me give you a practical example that everybody can relate to. You know, if you go to the gym, if you walked into the gym, walked right over to a bench and picked up bigger weight than you've ever lifted before, because remember, this is going to be in your discomfort zone, and you just decide to lift that without warming up, that's a good recipe for an injury. Well, the same is true in life. You don't want to tackle something without warming up and without moving up. And so here would be another example. And I've used book writing a lot, but there's a lot of people who want to write a book. But, you know, if I said to myself, okay, I'm going to write, I've never read a book before, but I'm going to write the, the, the chapter that I think is going to be the most difficult because if I can eat that frog first, then everything else is going to be easier. Here's the problem. You're going into it with no momentum. You're going into it with no sense of success. And you're trying to write this hard chapter without the momentum, and it's almost impossible, and you quit before you start. Instead, what would be the easiest thing to write? Like, I'm going to tell you, this is like stupid simple, but here's how I start writing every book. First thing I do is I say, okay, today, you know, let's just assume I've got a book proposal. I've got an outline, so I know where I'm going. And I say, okay, I'm just, today I'm just going to write the dedication. Next day, okay, I'm going to write an annotated table of contents. So just a little descriptive copy on, on each item in my table of contents. Next day, you know, I, I feel really good about chapter three. I've done a lot of research. You know, I've got some stories for that. So I'm going to start on that one. That's the easiest one. So I did this with my book, Living Forward, which is all about developing a life plan. And I was in Colorado for 30 days up in the mountains with my wife in a cabin. And my goal was to write this book. So I did exactly what I'm saying. I started with the easiest thing first. So I finally got to this big, hairy, gnarly chapter on day 30. So we were supposed to fly out the next morning. And I had this one chapter, the one I'd been putting off, the one that I knew was going to be the most difficult to write. But guess what? That was the, I had all this momentum. I'd written like, I don't know, 10 chapters. This was the last one that I had to write to finish the book. And then I could go home and say it was behind me. I was extremely motivated extremely confident. And I said to myself that morning, as I began to work on that chapter, I've got this. So that's the difference. Start with the easier stuff and give yourself a sense of momentum. Yeah, I've done that. I've noticed I've done that with my writing and just even other projects that I've done. I always do the easy stuff first to get that momentum. But the other thing I've learned whenever I start with easy stuff is I start figuring out the hard stuff in the process, right? Like when you start writing the easy stuff, you start and I don't know what's going on, but like by the time I get to that hard stuff, I kind of have it figured out by then because I've sort of sorted stuff out with the easy stuff. I don't, does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And I mean, you know, book writing would be a good example. You, you know, you're going to become a better writer in the process of writing a book. You're the last stuff you write is going to be better than the first stuff you wrote because you just got some, you know, mileage under your belt. Uh, you also talk about another thing to do to help you get started. You have these things called activation triggers. What are those? Yeah. An example of that is, you know, is there something where I could kind of stack the habit on top of something else that I I'm going to be doing anyway, that's a normal habit. So an example, if I'm wanting to run, if I've decided this next year that I want to develop a running habit, or if I want to run in a race of some sort, but I find myself getting up in the morning, kind of groggy. It's a little bit too cold out. It's 23, by the way, when I got up this morning here in Nashville, Tennessee, and I think, oh, you know, the, the weather's bad. I'm just going to wait. But if you do an activation trigger, what that might look like is you make it as easy as possible to get into the pursuit of that goal. So setting my running clothes out the night before so that when I walk into the bathroom, boom, there they are. It just makes it that much easier to follow through. 
Nice. Okay, so we've, we've set our goals. We're working on them. Do you have a review process that you use throughout the year to stay on track with your goals? Yeah. One of the things that I want to review my annual goals, I'm going to review those every day, just scan them every day for the first 30 days and make sure that I'm aware of them. Then I'm going to focus on the goals for that quarter, but I've got to get connected to those every day. And partly because that's, what's going to inform my task list. In other words, what I'm trying to think of what I need to get done today. One of the things I want to consider is what could I do today that would move me toward the completion of a goal that I have for this quarter. This takes like literally 30 seconds, no more than 60 seconds, but you got to maintain visibility. And too often people set a goal or a resolution that's not written down, or even if they set a goal, they put it on a you know document on their hard drive, or they write it in a journal somewhere, and then they lose visibility. And the loss of visibility is one of the biggest reasons people don't complete goals. They're just not reminding themselves of what it is that they set out to do. Okay. So review your process, constantly keep them uh, top of mind. Well, Michael, this has been a great conversation. Is there any place people can go to learn more about the book and the, the, the program, the course? Yeah. The best place to go is bestyearever.me. Bestyearever.me. You can get the, the book on Amazon or wherever better books are sold, as they say. But I really do recommend the course. The course goes deeper. It has a lot of exercises and it gives you a group to do it with. But that'll be launching soon. And again, it's at bestyearever.me. Michael Hyatt, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Brett. Appreciate being with you. My guest today was Michael Hyatt. He's the author of the book, Your Best Year Ever. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about the course, Your Best Year Ever, at bestyearever.me. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash yourbestyearever. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think will get something out of it. As always, Always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. Reminds you not to listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.